Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi everyone, I'm Michael Hoke and this is the Yale University Press podcast. Today we're talking about the future of Europe. Once a bastion of stability and peace, the Europe we all know appears to be on the brink of a seismic shift that will forever alter the landscape of the West. Brexit, the refugee crisis, meddling from the highest levels of the Russian government, and inner turmoil, we may be witness to what my guest today, Jamie Kerchick, calls the end of Europe, aptly the name of his current book. Jamie is a fellow at the Foreign Policy Initiative in Washington and a correspondent for the Daily Beast. He's also written for the Washington Post, the Weekly Standard, the Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Policy. Jamie, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So I guess the first question is, uh, has Europe ever actually been stable, or is that sort of an illusion we've had here in the West, or in the North American continent, I guess? Well, obviously there are differences to this. Certainly in Central and Eastern Europe, they never really experienced, um, or their their modern experience of freedom didn't really begin until 1989. Um, and they were denied the political freedom and liberty and self-determination that Western Europe uh, had after the Second World War because of the um, Cold War and the Soviet domination of that part of the world. Um, that said, I would still say that the, you know, the, the years dating from the end of World War II, the past 75, 80 years, uh, have been the most peaceful and prosperous period that Europe has ever known. And more people have enjoyed um, more freedom and uh, more economic well-being and safety and security um, over the past uh, 80 years of post-war European integration and also American um, involvement in the continent in its security architecture. Uh, more, more, more people have enjoyed uh, that um, than in any other period in European history. So what is it now, um, maybe specifically starting with somewhere like Great Britain, what is, what is it now that's starting to sort of trigger the, the feeling of voting for something like Brexit or feeling that, you know, maybe this European Union isn't going to work out? Well, Brexit, while I think is certainly a traumatic um, event in the history of the European Union um, and then certainly in the contemporary history of Europe, um, we should also remember that, you know, Britain was not a founding member of the European uh, community after World War II. They didn't, they didn't join what's now known as the EU until 1975. And at the time, you know, there was a great deal of opposition to them joining from France. I mean, Charles de Gaulle uh, twice, you know, basically intervened to stop Britain from joining. So Britain's leaving the EU um, is not as, it's not as serious um, a break as, say, you know, France leaving or, or Germany leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. The reasons, for, uh, the reasons for, the, for the crises, I think, that I talk about in my book, I think they're varied. I think, you know, many of us... Um, I overestimated, really, the degree to which the uh, three core uh, values, or I, I, I would say, of the post-89 world were accepted on, on economics, on democracy, and on security. On, on economics, we're seeing a serious challenge to free market capitalism on both the left and the right. Um, and I think we sort of took it for granted that um, this, uh, you know, re- regulated free market capitalism would just sort of be accepted by everyone. And clearly, 10 years on from the crash, um, there's still a lot of suspicion and there's still a lot of doubt about that type of system. On the issue of, you know, democracy, 
there was obviously, you know, Francis Fukuyama in, in, in his theory um, that, that democracy was really the unchallenged system of government, and clearly it's under attack, um, you know, not only in places like Hungary, where the prime minister openly calls for illiberal democracy, mm -hmm. but in the rise of populist movements in Western Europe, in a place like France, where Marine Le Pen mm -hmm. uh, is quite popular. Um, and then finally, on the security front, uh, we were very complacent about Russia and its um, acceptance of the post-Cold War security order. Uh, it's clear that Russia does not accept it, and it has not accepted it for quite some time, um, as made evident in its annexation of Crimea, the first violent seizure of territory on the European continent since World War II, uh, its ongoing war in eastern Ukraine, and the ideology coming out of the Kremlin, um, which is very antagonistic to the liberal world order. And we had assumed, I think falsely, that Europe would forever be you know, a place of perpetual peace mm -hmm. and a security exporter, um, when now it's Europe's own security, I think, is still uh, not something that should be taken for granted. Yeah, and... Um Speaking about Russia, obviously Russia is uh, in the news quite often uh, currently. Um, what what do you see as um, Russia's end game or goals as far as their uh, influence in Europe at the moment? I think Russia has two main goals, and it's to basically destroy the two main institutions that have uh, maintained peace and stability and progress in Europe. Uh, since the end, world, the end of World War II, and that is the European Union and NATO. And they seek to do this um, primarily through nonviolent means. It's through, um, th you know, this hybrid warfare. It's uh, disinformation, attacking and leaking. It's uh, giving money and covert support to uh, far-left and far-right political movements and parties. It's through um, energy blackmail. Um, it's through the spread of kleptocracy. Um, and so they would like to see in Europe, if you ask me what their end game is, they would like to see in Europe the rise of nationalist governments. It uh, doesn't matter what their political composition is, but nationalist governments that do not stand for the liberal values of the transatlantic community, that are anti-American, that are opposed to European integration, uh, and that oppose NATO. And the Russians understand rightly that the EU um, is a bulwark against Russian influence and Russian power in Europe. No European country on its own is big enough or strong enough or influential enough um, to combat this Russian influence. Uh, they're just too small. Yet, acting united as a whole with the United States, uh, the Euro-Atlantic community is far stronger than Russia. And so, you know, when it comes to something like energy, for instance, the EU has um, regulations, they have anti-monopoly regulations that can basically, you know, punish Gazprom for monopolistic practices. And so the Russians are doing everything they can to divide Europe from within. They don't want to see a common energy policy. They want to construct these oil pipelines like Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 that bypass Central and Eastern Europe uh, and send... Uh, energy and gas directly to uh, to Germany and then onward to France. Um, and so they would love to see, you know, leader, a, a bunch of little Trumps and Berlusconis and Gerhard Schroeders, uh, basically leaders who are purely transactional, 
who are willing to do business with Moscow without any consideration for things like solidarity with other European countries, or that, uh, or or have, and that have no concern for principles. Uh, they want a Europe that does not project its values into the post-Soviet space, um, and that is why the the events in Ukraine I think are so monumental for Putin. Because what happened in Ukraine was an indigenous grassroots uprising against corruption. And corruption is the coin of the realm for the Kremlin. It's how it does business. And they deal very well with corrupt leaders. Uh, and so when the pro-Russian corrupt president of Ukraine was uh, basically resigned and fled the country, uh, Putin could not stand for this. He could not stand for a Russian-speaking democracy of 45 million people on his border. Because to him, that threatens his own rule. The message that a, uh, a, a healthy, functioning, uh, Russian-speaking democracy in Ukraine, the message that would send to the Russian people, as an example, um, threatens his rule. And so what has he done? He's annexed Crimea, and he's basically invented an ethnic conflict in eastern Ukraine and has been waging a very deadly war there that has taken the lives of, of 10,000 people so far. Um, and so this is, this is going to be an ongoing struggle, I think, within the European Union. As long as this regime in Moscow exists, then we are going to be dealing with these disruptive forces within Europe. Who do you think has, at this point in time, maybe the most to uh, lose from Europe? And when you say the end of Europe, you're not saying that the, the continent's going to disappear or anything. You're just sort of saying right. this is a shift from the Europe we know Um, right now, and it'll become something else. So who has the most, at this point, to lose uh, from Europe crumbling in that way? Well, I think it's the European people themselves, the uh, Europeans who enjoy the highest standard of living of pretty much anywhere on Earth. I mean, European societies are constantly ranked, you know, the happiest, the wealthiest, the healthiest societies on Earth. And I think um, this is this has not been a natural state of things. I mean, Europe, if you look at the broad sweep of history, um, Europe has not always been this sort of exemplar of liberal democratic values. Quite the opposite, in fact, as, as we know from history. And I think there's a, there's a complacency um, and a sort of a short-term memory uh, when it comes to this, that we just, you know, immediately in our minds, we associate Europe with all these wonderful, nice things like social democracy and, you know, long life expectancy and whatnot. But that's a relatively new development, and, it, and, it's, and it's the responsibility of, um, or it's, it's, it's the effect of, you know, institutions that have been built, that have sustained uh, these, these hard-won gains. And so I think it's Europeans themselves who have the most uh, to lose, and, and basically the younger generations of Europeans who perhaps might not be as familiar with the history of their countries and who have only grown up and only known, um, you know, democracy and peace. So what is driving this sort of populism then um, for, for, through the people of, uh, of Europe? You know, you're mentioning in France and, and, um, and, and other places like that, that this sort of populist movement is, is taking over. So, what, it, you know, they are, as you know, some people in the U.S. would say, doing well in certain areas. So what's driving this sort of movement towards uh, breaking it apart in a way? There's many causes. Uh, I think economics is, is a clear one. And as I said, you know, the Eurozone growth has been quite low, mm-hmm. non-existent uh, since the crash. Youth unemployment in particular is very high in a country like France, where you see Marine Le Pen mm-hmm. uh, is, is the most popular candidate among young voters. 
And that is something that really militates against what we naturally think about young voters. We think of them as being liberal and voting for left-wing parties, but in France, it's actually quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. And um, I think if people are unemployed and they see no hope in the future, um, then they are often attracted to the more uh, radical candidates. Uh, I think questions of identity play a large role in the populist wave. I think the, the issue of Islam in Europe and the failure to assimilate or integrate many Muslim communities mm-hmm. um, and the sort of fear of um, Islam as a sort of undifferentiated force, you know, taking over a country, um, it's very much an, an, an exaggerated threat. But certainly when you combine it with the increasing um, terrorist attacks that are, that are occurring, particularly mm-hmm. when we just saw today in Stockholm, these yep. seem now to be a regular occurrence. I think that is uh, another contributing factor to uh, populist candidates who you know, propose very radical solutions when it comes to the question of Islam and dealing with migrants from the Muslim world. And then adding to this is, it's not the most important factor by any means, but it is it is significant, and it is, it is Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russia does exacerbate um, a lot of these sort of societal cleavages th- through their support to populist movements, and the, the propaganda that they transmit um, is constantly harping upon a civilizational clash with, with Islam, and this is something that has been... Uh, these are narratives that, that are increasingly being latched onto and propagated by populists including some of those who would be the least, would seemingly be the least likely people to be supporting Russian narratives. I mean, I again refer to Viktor Orban of Hungary, who, mm-hmm. whose political career really began as a liberal anti-communist figure. In, in 1989, he gave a very famous speech in Budapest calling for the removal of Soviet troops. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hungary is obviously a country with a, a very difficult relationship with Russia, having been invaded and, and brutally occupied by the Soviet Union um, during the during the Cold War era, you now have Viktor Orban basically repeating and uh, 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 e- e- echoing the the narrative that Russia is putting out there about uh, the sort of Judeo-Christian world civilizational death struggle against Islam. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, there are some p- parallels to maybe what's happening here in the U.S., but. Um, what is the current state of Europe? Where does that leave America at this point? Well, America has a very important role to play in Europe, and it's one that I think a lot of Americans don't understand. Um, the predicate for European in- in- integration has been the American security presence and the security architecture that was provided by the United States in the wake of World War II. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when the EU won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2012... <laughs> Uh, I think a lot of Europeans didn't appreciate uh, the role that you know that NATO played in this. Mm-hmm. Um, not only in resisting Russia from intervening in Western Europe during the Cold War, but also in basically neutralizing the um, the security uh, um, competition that might have arised again after World War II. I mean, the reason, one of the main reasons that you know France and Germany didn't have a, a rivalry again after World War II is because they were both members of this supranational military alliance that mm-hmm. was led and basically funded by the United States. And so the U.S. military footprint in Europe, which has gone down dramatically since the end of the Cold War, um, 
that played a huge role and continues to play a huge role in European uh, stability. And I think, you know, after the Cold War ended and the Soviet threat went away, a lot of Americans just assumed that, you know, we, we were done with Europe, it was finished, it was forever going to be peaceful. And I think we've seen over the past couple of years, as, as Russia has reemerged as a revisionist power that wants to basically overturn the liberal world order uh, more broadly, but also the, the security architecture within Europe itself, uh, that the American role in Europe is as vital today as it has uh, really ever been. And so what kind of, you know, I mean, we have Trump running on and then and continuing sort of a narrative that NATO is no good. What, does that further the wedge? Does that cause more instability in Europe? Or is, is that sort of the sentiment that maybe many people in Europe already have? Absolutely. I, mean, I think it, 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 de- it definitely uh, is, is a force of instability in, 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 in an internal and an external sense. In the mm-hmm. external sense, you know, to, to raise doubts about Article 5, which is the Collective Security Clause, which says an attack on one member is an attack on all. Mm-hmm. And to raise doubts about that, like Donald Trump has, by saying, well, America won't, you know, respect this unless the members of NATO pay up. Uh, that sends a very ambiguous message to the Russians. Because um, let's not forget, you know, the reason why we didn't have World War III on the European continent was because of NATO, it's because the Russians believe the word of the United States. And mm-hmm. they, they believed the U.S. would back up its security commitments if the Russians ever dared uh, attack Western Europe. And I think that's no less true today. Mm-hmm. And so, in, you know, when you have someone like uh, Newt Gingrich say, well, Estonia is just a suburb of St. Petersburg, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but Estonia is a member in good standing of NATO, and mm-hmm. the United States is committed to its defense, just as Estonia has stood by the United States when we were attacked on 9-11. Mm-hmm. And then internally, if, if, if NATO were to, you know, disappear, or if NATO were to be um, not counted upon by European countries, and you could see a, a return of security competition between European countries, because they would no longer have this, this, this uh, collective security guarantee, this multinational military alliance that they are all members of and that they all contribute to. If that goes away, then you will see the renationalization of security and foreign policy um, to an extent that you hadn't seen since, you know, World War II. Uh, We would revert back to a a pre-NATO era Mm -hmm. when countries could only depend upon themselves for their defense. And I think, you know, knowing the history of Europe, I don't think that's the road that we want to trot down once again. And so obviously, you know, uh, just just recently, um, the U.S. has uh, attacked an airbase in Syria, which sort of goes against r- what Russia is doing there. And yes. that's been uh, praised by some of the, the, the European leaders, Theresa May, and among others. So does that maybe <laughs> counter what some, of, uh, tr- what some of the things Trump has said about NATO or uh, the U.S. being uh, sort of this America first? And maybe they, we will uh, participate in some of these things. Does that help maybe... Um, with the, the feelings towards stability there? Well, it definitely comes as something of a surprise, because <laughs> if you listen to Donald Trump during the campaign trail, um, he said more positive things about Bashar al-Assad, mm-hmm. that we were going to cooperate with him, perhaps, in fighting ISIS, uh, that we were going to cooperate with the Russians in Syria, and obviously the Russians are the main military backer alongside Iran of the Syrian regime. 
And so to see Trump kind of flip so quickly on a dime here and attack the Assad regime mm -hmm. um, after, you know, six years of the Obama administration doing absolutely nothing but mm -hmm. just, you know, make some, you know, having Samantha Power make very emotive speeches in, this, in the UN Security Council, it definitely comes as a, as a welcome surprise to me. I hope it's part of a broader strategy and not just a one-off. Mm -hmm. um, but it definitely does not, it does not accord with, with how Donald Trump campaigned for president, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it sort of seems as though it maybe puts that kind of red line back in place that maybe people felt didn't exist outside of it being on paper. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I'm just sort of curious if that, if that sends a message to Russia that, hey, maybe the U.S. isn't out of this thing and, and, and it maybe changes the, the mood in, in Europe a little bit. Yes, although, you know, the Europeans um, never really got their act together on Syria either. Right. Um, there was a brief moment in 2013 when the French were pretty much, they had the planes on the runway ready to attack Assad after the first chemical gas attack became mm -hmm. publicized, and uh, Obama basically let them down. Um, but, you know, one of the arguments I make in the book is that, you know, Europe, Europe as a whole needs to have a more assertive a foreign, foreign policy, a more robust foreign policy, in its periphery, um, because these, these crises, um, they have uh, effects, and they can't just be contained. And we've seen that in the refugee crisis, um, which is basically being caused to a large extent by the Assad regime's war on its own people, and it's driving out massive numbers of people, and they are coming to Europe. Mm -hmm. And that has a disruptive effect on domestic European politics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, going back to the, to the point I made earlier about the, the issue of Islam, and, and migration, um, and, and, it, and it, uh, it, it exacerbates a lot of the social tensions that already exist between Muslims and the, and the native populations of these countries. And so, if you know, Europe just the Europe, Europe, Europeans cannot just uh, assume that they are sitting in a in a utopia. I mean, they're actually in a pretty dangerous neighborhood geographically. They have an unstable uh, periphery, whether it's North Africa or if it's the Middle East or Russia on its eastern side, which is an increasingly aggressive military power. And so, you know, if there's one, um, I would say the, the greatest, you know, reason for European integration and cooperation is to act as a geopolitical power, because, you know, Germany alone, or Hungary alone, or Greece alone, they're just not capable of dealing with these global mm -hmm. challenges. They can only confront these issues working collectively as a body of, you know, 28, soon to be 27 countries. Yeah, and I mean, going back to this idea of the U.S. in Europe, um, how, would you rate, um, how would you rate America's foreign policy toward Europe over the past few administrations? Well, um, if we would start, you know, with the post- Cold War period. I mean, Bill Clinton was a very ambitious president. I think they really seized the agenda to expand the EU and NATO to bring the, um, the former nations of the Warsaw Pact, post-communist nations, to bring them into the Western uh, community. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a great success. I think uh, you know to bring countries like the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Poland and Hungary and the Baltic states to, to bring them into the into the European community uh, to let them return to Europe, I think, was, uh, was one of the greatest foreign policy successes of the United States. And there's a lot of, you know, 
retrospective hand-wringing about whether or not NATO uh, expanded too far, and I think that's absolutely wrong. I think NATO expansion was uh, a fantastic idea, and I think it worked very well. And I think, you know, countries that were they not in NATO, they would now be in a gray area, and we would be very concerned more concerned than we are about the security of places like Poland and the Baltic states if they didn't have that NATO guarantee and if they weren't part of NATO. So I look back on NATO expansion as being a very successful project. Um, you know, George W. Bush, it continued under him. There were obviously uh, a grave crisis in transatlantic relations over the Iraq War when Europe was very divided with some countries like Britain and Spain and the newer members of the EU joining the United States. But uh, you know, old Europe, as Donald Rumsfeld directly called it, France and Germany, uh, standing very much opposed to that war in Iraq. Uh, when Barack Obama came on the scene, there was a lot of jubilation, a lot of happiness, mm-hmm. largely, I think, for superficial reasons. People, you know, they didn't like George W. Bush, and they thought, well, here was this, this black president who speaks in these universalistic tones, and and uh, he, he's, he, he's such an optimist, and he really sort of appealed to that, um, to what Europeans, uh, to kind of their rosier perceptions of the United States. But, mm-hmm. you know, as President uh, Barack Obama was not very, con- you know, didn't really care much about Europe. He was more concerned about Asia and the pivot to Asia. Mm-hmm. The military uh, footprints in, in Europe drastically declined under Obama. And then there was the reset, which I discussed in detail in the book, which mm-hmm. I think was a real failure of policy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, implementing a, a reset with Russia just about six months after um, the Russians invaded and occupied Georgia with barely a slap on the wrist, we really sold out our Central and Eastern European allies who were warning us that Vladimir Putin's Russia is not a partner, is not interested in a productive relationship, it's a revisionist power, uh, and they were ignored and they were shunted aside because Barack Obama wanted to, you know, forge a, a new positive relationship with Russia, and that obviously lies in tatters now. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, while I have many criticisms of Donald Trump, um, I think we uh, shouldn't forget that, you know, it was Barack Obama who really laid the groundwork um, for this, this really naive view of Russia. Yeah, and I mean, it's almost... It almost seems like maybe <laughs> foreign policy in Europe has just become a little almost complacent in a way, uh, taking it for granted and, and these things are happening and, and sort of someone's asleep at the switch in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, Donald Trump, he's right when he says that Europeans should spend more on their defense. Mm-hmm. And that's something that really every American president, you know, going back to probably Eisenhower has said. And... Um, they absolutely need to spend more on their defense, and they need to be more hard-headed about dealing with Russia. And I think, um, you know, in particular, the the um, the borders of Europe have, as as they have, have expanded um, eastward. I think it's important that we follow that up with a military footprint. So I think we need a stronger military presence in in countries like Poland and the Baltic states, mm-hmm. um, so that the Russians are deterred from doing anything rash in those. So looking to uh, the near future, we'll say, uh, what are some upcoming uh, European elections that we should be watching, and and what what is the significance of some of their outcomes? Well, obviously the the 
most important election uh, or that, that's coming up soon is the French election mm-hmm. where uh, Marine Le Pen of the National Front is expected to go into the second round. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's highly unlikely that she will win just due to the, the nature of the system that they have. Mm-hmm. When they have a, 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 I mean, she'll, she'll probably get a plurality right. in the first round, but she's unlikely to win in the second round. But she will do much better than her father did when he last read in 2002. Mm-hmm. She'll probably get something, you know, 35 to 40 percent in the second round. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next major election is in Germany in the fall, where Angela Merkel will be running for a fourth term. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been in office for 12 years. And she has really been the de facto leader of Europe mm-hmm. uh, as, the, as the leader of you know, Europe's biggest economy. Um, and certainly in terms of holding the line on sanctions against mm-hmm. Russia, um, she has been uh, very clear on this. And there's a lot of dissension within the ranks about maintaining sanctions on Russia for what it's been doing in Ukraine, uh, whether it's you know, from the left, the Syriza government in Greece, or from the right, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, it's not exactly a very popular policy, but she's been able to maintain that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that the Russians will be very active in the German election, uh, waging a sort of hybrid war against Angela Merkel to discredit her through propaganda, disinformation. Uh, we already know that they've hacked the Bundestag in, in 2015, and mm-hmm. I'm sure there will be some sort of leaks related to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in many ways, as far as this aspect of the campaign goes, is Merkel will be sort of the, the Hillary Clinton of 2017, that she will come under a sort of full-spectrum propaganda assault. Mm-hmm from uh, the, the, the Kremlin in the same way that, that Hillary Clinton was, was targeted. And, who, and who's her biggest uh, opposition or threat at this point in the election? Well, I mean, the biggest, the main challenger is, is the new leader of the Social Democrats, a man named Martin Schultz, who mm-hmm. um, was most recently the president of the European Parliament. Um, and the Social, I mean, she's currently governing with the Social Democrats and the Grand Coalition. She's been doing that for the past four years. Um, although the, the appetite for another grand coalition is not very strong on, on either side, um, among either Social Democrats or Christian Democrats. I think both sides would rather govern uh, with other parties. Um, the other thing to watch for in Germany is the alternative for Deutschland, the alternative for Germany, which is a, a far-right nationalist party um, that started off as being mainly an anti-Euro party, and was mostly sort of, you know, pointy-headed academic economist types. But since the migrant crisis really took off, it sort of refashioned itself as a traditional, um, uh, you know, folkish party, a a real nationalist kind of ethnic identity-based party in the same way that the National Front or or other kind of far-right parties in Europe uh, Mm -hmm. are. And if it succeeds in getting into the Bundestag, which it probably will, if there's a 5% threshold and it's currently falling at 6%, mm-hmm. then it'll be the first far-right party to be in the German parliament since World War II. Hmm. So that'll be a very sort of historic moment uh, in German politics, where, where far-right politics have obviously been a taboo mm-hmm. uh, for a very long time. And in this sense, I think Germany is becoming... Um, more of a normal European country. And, and one aspect of being a normal European country is that you have uh, a far-right party that attracts you know, anywhere from 5 to 25% of the vote. And, you know, one of the fears, um, even before Brexit, but uh, 
post-Brexit was that it might prompt other countries to leave. There was the, you know, before Brexit, there was a chance that, that Greece might leave and they didn't. Do you, do you foresee anybody else trying to leave or um, do you think it's sort of set right now as, as well, Britain navigates Marine, it? Yeah, if Marine Le Pen wins, then mm-hmm. that is pretty much the end of the European project. Because uh-huh. She is you know, explicitly anti-Euro, mm-hmm. anti, really anti-European Union. Um, and, if, and if she wins, that would signal a real serious shift mm-hmm. in um, French politics, certainly. Um, the role that Britain's leaving could have on the internal dynamics of the EU is such that some of the other countries within the EU that are more inclined to the to the British perspective mm-hmm. on uh, the more you know the sort of Anglo-Saxon perspective on economics and um, just in government generally, they may feel more isolated within the within the chambers of the EU. So a country like the Netherlands. Um, which is a more, you know, free market, deregulated economy, um, they may feel more lonely now within mm-hmm. the EU. Uh, the same goes for some of the Central and Eastern European countries, um, which are more similar to Britain in outlook. Um, and I think you'll see the EU become more of a Franco-German project, and that could alienate some of the other members within the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's another country that, that where, where anti-EU sentiment is high, it isn't maybe a place like the Netherlands, where... Um, maybe 30 to 40 percent of people there would support a a referendum on EU membership, um, and I I'm, and I worry that Britain's leaving could have a could could give a sort of boost to those forces. All right, well that's all the time we have. But Jamie, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So the book is The End of Europe: Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. And that does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.